Thanks for downloading show 22 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being recorded in Toronto at the World PR Forum. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and this episode of the series is going to take a slightly different format to previous shows, as I've been going around grabbing as much content from presenters and delegates at the conference as I could, and uh, therefore there's going to be a whole host of topics covered off uh, this time around. Now, having already had enough Tim Horton's coffee to last a week, I'm instead sat with my English breakfast tea to record my links in uh, my little mocked-up kind of studio here outside the main conference hall um, with all the kit that's uh, been lent to me by the team at Broadcast Specialist Marketeers. Now, of course, as usual, if you hear anything you want to comment on, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag hash C-Suite podcast. So first up, after their workshop on the future of PR, I grabbed some time with one of my previous guests from show 18, where we actually previewed this session, Arun Suderman, who is President and Editor-in-Chief of The Homes Report, and Fred Cook, who is the CEO of Golin. Plus, I managed to get current CIPR President and Managing Partner of Rule 5, Rob Brown, to join us too. Thanks for breaking into your lunch break to record this uh, session for me, gentlemen. Um, Great presentation just now. Just for the benefit of our listeners, Arun, do you want to just give a quick summary of what you just presented at the conference? Sure. I mean, we went through some of the findings from the new global communications reports, the first edition of the survey, uh, which explores how the public relations industry is changing on both the agency and in-house side. We got more than a thousand responses from agency and in-house all across the world. uh, And we felt that we had some really interesting findings about the way the industry is changing over the next five years, and in particular that, that perhaps it's not changing as fast as it should be. And so we talked through some of those findings uh, here at the World Public Relations Forum. Um, before we did that, though, Fred, uh, who's sitting next to me here, uh, went through his own colorful life story, which I think is, is required reading for everyone in the industry because it helps us understand that uh, we don't need people who just who just have the same experiences and come from the same colleges. We, we actually benefit, I think, from having people who have a broad range Uh, of experiences and skills. Well, you link nicely into my next question there, Arun, because I was going to ask you, Fred, how did you get involved in in the study? I got involved in the study because I recently took on a job in addition to being CEO of Golan as the director of the Center of Public Relations at the University of Southern California. And they had done a survey for many years called the Gap Report, and uh, I wanted to do something that was a little fresh and new. So we redesigned it and we partnered with the Holmes Report to make it a global study. And we got a lot of other prestigious organizations involved. And that was sort of the genesis of it. And we just released the full study today. Okay, and uh, where can listeners go to download that report, which we're about to chat through? Nowhere right now. The Ah, full report is still not (laughs) available, but it will be available on the Holmes Report website probably by tomorrow. Right, so we're very privileged to have a printed copy. This is is almost like a sneak preview. Yeah, there's an executive summary online at the Holmes Report, and lots of the findings are already available. But for the full full PDF, it'll be up within the next 24 hours or so. So by the time this podcast goes live, I imagine. Okay, so lots covered in the session. Um, A key theme was on talent and skill sets required to do the job. Well, I think that... The part of what I think Arun, to expand upon what Arun was saying, we think that the PR industry has an enormous opportunity right now. We're at a really sort of the golden age of communications and our, the, the communications industry is changing really fast. But in order to take advantage of that change, we have to have a different skill set, different types of people in our industry that are great thinkers, very creative, very bold, 
and uh, willing to take risks, I think, is an important part of it. So we're looking for people with more courage and, uh, and, and that sort of approach to their work. I want to bring Rob into the, uh, the chat. What, what was your sort of thoughts on the, on the overall presentation and that bit in particular about um, sort of finding new talent? I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I, w I work in agency. I've always worked in agency, and it reflected the changes that we're seeing and that I see with uh, other people through my role in the CIPR, uh, talking to lots of people. Uh, one thing that I think is fascinating is you take the old-fashioned SWOT analysis. There are lots of opportunities, but there are also lots of threats. Uh, and the lines are being blurred in all sorts of ways. So, for instance, in crisis communications, we're in competition with lawyers uh, who, who actually have certain skills that PR people also have. And uh, in other areas, we're in competition with um, video production companies, so where we're making content. So my agency is actually uh, up for some awards next week in an awards scheme where there's a video production company. Now, a few years ago, that would have been inconceivable, but, but, but the lines are blurring, not just between traditional marketing communications. So people talked about blurring lines between advertising and PR and marketing for quite a number of years. That's getting much more much more broad and that, that uh, there, are, there are lots of different dynamics. Well, Fred, you, you mentioned in your talk then um, just now about the fact that we're fishing in the same pond when we're you know, looking to hire people, PR agencies picking people from other PR right. agencies in-house going for you know, people that are already in-house in role. Is there any way you think we should be looking for talent you know, at other areas that we should be pick, you know, looking specifically for? Rob's obviously just mentioned a few different um, sort of skill sets there. Yes, it, our surveys show that PR agencies are hiring from other PR agencies and in-house teams are hiring from other in-house teams. So I think we need to, to, to fish in different ponds. We've hired a lot of people at Golan uh, from advertising agencies. That's, I think, a, an, an easy transition. And we bring people in, 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 in either as uh, planners, in many cases, or people who are dealing with data and analytics, or creatives. I think that we have a huge uh, need for more creative talent. So I think ad agencies are good for that. We've also hired for management consulting firms. I think that's a, a terrific opportunity. And from graphic design, uh, social media platforms, I think the, the more broadly we look for talent, the more interesting and diverse our companies will be. And I think the challenge here is that a lot of those types of people, that type of talent, could quite easily go and work for Google or Facebook or one of those types of companies and they're really employers of choice. So the public relations industry has to, to get used to the idea that it's competing not just with other PR agencies for talent, but it's competing with companies like Google and Facebook who offer, you know, bean bags, stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a flippant point, but, you know, it, I think the industry has to get a lot better at selling itself as an attractive destination for people that really do have a lot of options in terms of where they can go. I want to just change uh, topic uh, slightly. I mean, it's all, all related, obviously. Fred, you showed a great video about the Goling uh, unturnship, yes. where you're paying people not to come to the office, I think right. uh, you explained it, and encouraging them to experience yeah. life outside of work to bring life back in, into work. Can you share a little bit of info on the program and how it's working for the business? Well, it, we created it because I wrote a book about my own career, and it was quite unorthodox. And the general manager of our Dallas office said, after she read it, she said, I would have never hired you in a million years. And we realized that was a problem, that we were restricting ourselves to people that were all fit the same mold. So we addressed it directly by going out and creating a competition to find, hire different kinds of people. And for the first three months of an internship, uh, when we choose our intern, they get to travel at our expense all around the world and do things that they've never done before. 
and it's been a great experience for them. We've done our second one in the U.S. We just uh, chose our first unturn in London, and we're choosing one now in China. And it, it's been a great experience. We found lots of, we've got hundreds of entries. We end up hiring many of the people who don't become the unturns just to be interns for us. And it's also done wonders for our employer brand. It's created a, a sense about Golan that we're different than everyone else. And so a lot of people know about the program and are excited about working with us. So it's a small program, but it's done wonders for our perception among this millennial audience and, and recent college graduates. I had a question tweeted in uh, from, and I hope I pronounced her name correctly, Janina Stajic. Her Twitter handle is at Blogs, And she wondered what the parameters um, stroke expectations around the internship were. Well, there are really, it was interesting because when we uh, first had the finalists uh, in the first year come to Chicago, there were three of them, and we didn't really have any criteria for choosing the intern. People said, what are you looking for? And we, we didn't have a criteria. We sort of allowed them to, to teach us. And, and, and once we got to know these people and saw them in action, it was pretty, pretty easy to determine what they want to do. But we're looking for people that are brave, who think outside the box and have a different approach to life and work than most people do. And they can bring something special to our company, but that could be different with different kinds of people. So it's pretty wide open um, criteria. Okay, um, Rob, we were chatting yesterday about this issue of skills requirements and for example, like we're doing now, recording this podcast that some people believe it's simple, you know, it's really simple to do, you just need a mobile, go and record an interview and you're done course not trying to justify my own show here but there's a bit more to it in terms of planning and creating content and getting it into the right places well well just for the listener there are a couple of desk mics here there's a laptop exactly. uh, there's a zoom recorder so you've got some quite decent kit Thank here you very much. And, and I and I I think um, there's an education job actually that needs to go on uh, both in agencies but very much with clients as well as there is this sort of perception that you can do live social media if you've got a phone and it takes an enormous amount of resource to do it properly uh, one of the uh, one of the jobs that we do is we work with recycling and we've been working on major events for a number of years and this time at the World Track Championships in London, which is a five-day event at the uh, Olympic Arena, for the first time we used photographers with Wi-Fi back cameras, which meant we could take. So when Bradley Wiggins and Mark Cavendish won the the uh, Madison in glorious style uh, at the end of the event, we were able to get an iconic picture, which has become the picture of the event onto social media channels within, within about three minutes of it happening. That takes a lot of resource. We had five professional photographers. We had two Wi-Fi spots. We had a person with an Apple Mac in the middle of the uh, arena, and we had. A couple of people back in the media room and and to get those things out there whereas people assume that that these things can be done they can be done cheaply uh, and they can be done with little resource but actually if you're going to do them properly there's quite a lot of kit experience yeah. personnel you know uh, resource that has to go into it we just uh, did all of the social media for the pope's visit pope francis visit to the united states and he was here for six days and we created 2,500 pieces of unique content over that six-day period. But it was a team of about 40 people who were involved, and they were working 24-7 on that project. So it is, it's a very intense yeah. effort. Yeah, I what, can imagine. So in your role at the uh, CIPR, what, what's the organization doing around ensuring members have these skills required you know, for the changing industry that Arun and, and Fred you know, highlighted earlier? Well, I think 10 years ago, the CIPR was uh, quite a traditional organization that uh, maybe might have been accused of being a little bit backward looking. And we, uh, uh, we had a, uh, a president, Jay O'Connor, who came in uh, and 
invited me. I'd just written a book on PR and social media at the time. Uh, and I know you were one of the people that uh, I came to to form a social media panel, which I think did a, a vast amount uh, for the organization. And we are just about to launch uh, a new initiative, which is going to board in a couple of weeks, uh, that's about broadening that out. So, so bringing in you know, people within the industry and volunteers within the industry to think about how the profession is developing so that we can help to carry on that good work. Excellent. Um, okay, last couple of questions, and these are actually uh, sent in from one of your fellow uh, presenters here at the conference and a good friend of the C-Suite podcast, uh, Stephen Waddington. Um, he and should be banned. <laughs> he's on. He's on too many times, actually. Yeah, he is. Um, now he is. Uh, for those who don't know, um, he's partner and chief engagement officer at Ketchum. And so, firstly, uh, Wads wants to know what percentage of business is still focused on traditional media as a means of public engagement, and how do we accelerate shift? And by that, he's referring to things like branded media, social uh, communities, and all the skills needed for research, planning, content creation, analytics, measurement, etc. Uh, well, in terms of the percentage. Uh, if we assume that earned media is is traditional, then it's around a third, yeah. I think, right now. And it's only no, I think it's no, it's more like forty percent now. It's going to drop down to less than a third uh, by twenty twenty. Fred, any? So I think on? we're we're seeing a big shift towards the other channels, and I and I think that we're what, what our survey showed is that agencies and in-house teams realize this; they're moving in the right direction. But I, I'm not sure that they're moving as quickly as the rest of the world. We, we, in particular, the area of paid seems to be a big opportunity. And so many outlets, because of the media's business model, are shifting to a paid approach to actually make money. Then, And I don't see as, as many uh, PR professionals uh, understanding and leveraging the paid media as much as I think we need to over the next few years. So the, the PR industry becomes ever more complex, and if you take the peso model, it, whether it's earned, owned, or shared, depends on who you are. So there really isn't a line anymore. I don't, I don't see a line between social and conventional media. There, there, is, there is no conventional media that has no social uh, aspect to it or no digital aspect to it. So, so understanding where that line is, is, in fact, I think you should forget about the line entirely and stop worrying about... Um, stop worrying about what percentage is in what area. We, we all consume media digitally. That's going to grow and grow. Uh, but, but we still need to understand the, the dynamics of... of uh, print's still quite valuable. We've just launched a, a print magazine for the Chancellor Institute of Public Relations. It's called Influence, and the response to, the response to it has been phenomenal. Um, so yeah, print will always have a place, but I think we should forget about the line. Okay. Um, and uh, Stephen's second question... Uh, was how do we define personal agency or team competency in a business that's changing so fast? I, I, you know, is Stephen preparing for a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> is this for his own session? <laughs> I, I, I think about that as uh, as the, as the uh, head of the the PR center at USC about students and what we should be teaching them, and I think it's a combination of things. I think they still need to learn the basic communication skills and those are still important. But I think we've also got to instill a sen sense of courage and risk-taking and uh, creativity in them as well, because if we're going to really lead, we can't just be the people that are writing press releases. And I use the analogy, do, do we want to people, be people that are writing the speeches or the people giving the speeches? And I think it's time that we're more giving them than not. Okay. I think that's a nice way to finish. Thanks oh. for the questions, Woods. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Arun Suderman, Fred Cook, and Rob Brown, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. 
Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com. Support for the C-Suite podcast comes from Broadcast Specialist Marketeers. Broadcast Specialist Marketeers. Market hires? Tears. Tears. Half of the world's most valuable brands. User Marketeers. Delivering stories and content on air, online and to mobile that capture attention. Marketeers. Switch on the power of broadcast. Very nice. I use Marketeers. You do? I love it. So joining me now, fresh after her session on mitigating the risks of greenwashing, is Angela Barter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you uh, finding the conference so far? Brilliant. For a first day, good start. Good stuff, good stuff. Uh, Now, before we talk uh, greenwashing, um, can you give us a quick introduction to you and your company, The PR Agency? It's a pretty good name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my um, background is classic PR. I'm a chartered public relations practitioner. I've been in the industry for over 17 years, and I'm also a sustainable communication strategist, and I hold a PGD in environmental management, and I'm currently doing my master's in environmental management, um, just so that I can get a deeper level of understanding, so that I can communicate better through my talks. And you're based in South Africa? I am. Whereabouts? In a little place called East London. It's along the beach. It is beautiful. Excellent. Um, Now... You showed a couple of ads in your session, uh, a couple of brands, Unilever and Renault, on how they're promoting sustainability, which I'll share on the write-up uh, when I upload this uh, this podcast. I'll share the links to those. Why did you pick those out in particular? There are a lot of adverts out there from companies that are wanting to communicate their environmental ethos and actions to people. Many companies are moving towards a more sustainable and responsible practices. And they're adopting strategies such as lowering greenhouse gas emissions. They are talking about reducing their fuel consumption, recycling. They're talking about conserving water and energy and deforestation. And a lot of these companies are obviously now communicating those via adverts, via PR messages, marketing material. So uh, tell us about greenwashing. (laughs) Well, greenwash, uh, according to Greenpeace, is the act of misleading consumers into thinking that a product is environmentally responsible when it is actually not. And this has become quite a big issue where a lot of companies are obviously communicating, like I said, the environmental actions and ethos, but a lot of them don't have the verifiable evidence to back up the environmental claims that they're making. And the consumers are none the wiser. And there's a lack of understanding in terms of environmental issues. So what's happening is is that consumers are not understanding the messages and there's a form of misleading um, that is happening and it's unethical. So it's interesting, in your session you shared um, a number of ways that uh, that, uh, greenwashing is happening. I think you classed them as the sins of greenwashing. Can can you share sort of some of them now, but also where as consumers we may spot them? Sure. The sins of greenwashing is quite well known from, it was drafted by a company called Terra Choice, and you can actually go onto their website, and they've given the seven sins of greenwashing. What I discussed in my talk was just a few of them, and a few that come to mind are irrelevant claims. That is when you emphasize one tiny attribute when everything else is kind of, can I say, ungreen. So, for example, I can say that this product is CFC-free. Now, to 
the consumer, that sounds like we're doing fantastic work. That's really great. But what if I told you that CFCs were banned years ago? You know, then there's other sins that they talk about, about not having any verifiable evidence, the no proof claim. Then they talk about not telling the truth, blatant lying. Um, they have one called better than claims where they profess to, where a company professes to be better than their competitor, but usually the industry on a whole is not good at all. So an example of this would be organic cigarettes. And another one is they talk about suggestive imaging. Um, this we see a lot of. I mean, these are the rolling hills, the waterfalls, the green trees, the happy music. And most of the time, the product is actually secondary to all the imagery that's happening around. I have to say, one of the things that you talked about in there is in, in the session was about hotels and, um, or I, I should say some hotels, better cover ourselves here, but encouraging you to reuse your, your towels and the claim that that's all about the environment when possibly it's more about reducing costs. And I, and I guess this kind of sits within greenwashing because it's a, been a big bugbear of mine. You, you see that message, you then go down to the breakfast buffet and there's so much food yeah. that is just getting wasted, you know, which can't be correct in terms of you know, ethical or, or, or a green uh, organisation. Uh, you know, Russell, this is what we're seeing a lot of. That, that term, greenwashing, was actually coined by Jay Westervelt, who actually did go into the hotel. And um, to his disappointment, he found out that the hotel was actually trying to decrease their costs rather than actually trying to save the environment. And what people do and what people say differs. What people profess to say about the environmentally responsible actions does not relate into the everyday actions. And we see this so often in PR marketing advertising where, you know, companies profess to be one thing, but then you'll be going past the office block at night and their lights are on or there's pollution. Or my favorite is going into a company um, where the, uh, the client has an environmental product and he wants you as a communicator to communicate it. So what do you do? You get the media and the journalists to go and visit the CEO and do an interview about this wonderful green product. And you walk in and it's not one recycle bin in sight. The medium does not match the no. message. And like you said, um, you know, you look at all the waste. I mean, we're going into a series of food insecurity. Natural resources are being depleted. Water, are they conserving water? Are they changing the energy usage? And I must say, every step is a step in the right direction. But sometimes there are other benefits that companies have become, they've, co they've cottoned on that it's not just by reducing your environmental footprint, they're also realizing that they can increase efficiency, they can decrease costs, they can become a better link in the supply chain. There are so many more benefits other than just saving the environment, which is what seemingly is still lacking. I, th I think I hit a nerve there. You're getting really passionate. About <laughs> I'm this. very passionate about what <laughs> I do. Very well, passionate. Okay, well, here's a question then. Do, do you think, you know, because we're seeing this obviously a lot uh, around us. Is there a worry though that you know we could end up with green fatigue? Definitely. Um, I'm thinking I'm really starting to see it at the moment. Widespread greenwashing is a, I think, a big reason why there is such a um, little genuine concern for the environment. The overuse of environmental claims is another huge big issue where people are becoming confused with all these logos and all these phrases and messages. And then there's the I'm green. People are almost becoming immune to that. They're switching off. And the problem that um, I have with that is that it's not 
promoting a pro-environmental behavior. People are just becoming tired of seeing it. It's just something like, for example, the Mobus Loop, which is the recyclable mm. sign. How many people, it's just become every day now that they see it, that it doesn't mean anything to people. So we need to keep those people encouraged. Um, we need to keep reminding them the importance of what we're doing, especially as communicators. We can, we, we can influence those decisions. Um, you finished with a video from Softwater Brewery, uh, who are using, and, and this was absolutely amazing, they're using a biogradable edible six-pack can ring and it was, it was just fascinating, although I must admit some of the, the Vox, Pops, Vox Pops in the video felt a bit scripted. But that aside, <laughs> the invention is simply brilliant. Do you want to just quickly talk about that? And, oh. and I have to say you're doing a brilliant job seeing us, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, all the noise and the clanging that you can hear as they're actually clearing, ar clearing up around the conference uh, behind us at the moment. But yeah, go on, tell us, tell us about that particular uh, story. Wow. Well, Saltwater Brewery, the fact that they've introduced the biodegradable um, can rings, six-pack rings, is going to revolutionize, well, I hope it's going to revolutionize the, the beer industry. Those plastic um, beer rings are the ones that get easily discarded and end up in the sea. And what happens is, is that animals ingest them, animals get caught in those beer rings, and it is just, it's devastating to see what's happening to our marine life in terms of that. So this company has taken that one step to do something about it. They're committed to marine life. That's, that is their passion. So they've taken what they're dedicated to and they've created something uh, that is edible and biodegradable for, for fishes. And what's great about it is that they show you, they've got verifiable evidence to back it up and they're definitely not greenwashing. So yeah. I'm all for that ad. I love it, I love it. Brilliant. Um, so finally, what's your key message about this whole topic? If you could sum it up. I think as communicators and PR professionals, we are in a unique position to shift attitudes and change behaviors to one that is uh, more of a pro-environmental behavior where we can actually see people making a difference. I really believe that a new breed of PR is needed. A PR and, and a PR practitioner that is well-versed in environmental issues, environmental ethics, and environmental law, where we can guide companies in crystallizing their communication intent and really, truly make a difference to this place that we call home, Earth. Brilliant. Now, I did say finally, I have got one last question. Do, do you recycle? Of course I do. I even separate my waste. And if you go onto my Twitter feed, which is at Angela Barter, you will see a photograph of me doing my weekly recycling. Fantastic. Angela Barter, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. So that was it for day one of the conference. I'm splitting this show into uh, different parts this time so that I can get these two interviews up on the feed quickly. And I'll be recording more content during the second and third days, of course. So uh, if you subscribe to the series on f uh, podcasts on either SoundCloud or iTunes, you'll get those automatically into your feed. Uh, just search for the C-Suite podcast. And if you're on iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and a nice review while you're there. If you want to get involved in this uh, series of shows, then the best place to do that is via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or drop me a line using the contact form at c-suitepodcast.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.
Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing, and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com.